And so one thing I've had to change is how do I show up to a random town somewhere in, in the U.S. or Mexico or wherever it might be and explain mountain biking and explain the benefits of mountain biking to a non-rider, non-builder, even to somebody who might have never set foot in the park that they manage, which is unfortunately, you know, can be a thing. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Episode 96 features Cody Wilkins, the man behind Census Rad Trails, or shall I say the man behind the man behind Census Rad Trails, as Census Rad Trails was started by Cam Zink. This is an all-encompassing conversation, as Cody has had the privilege to build in all three time zones in the United States along with Mexico, so he has a ton of knowledge and stories to share based on his experiences. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts, such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with tagging Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all the sharing, commenting, and tagging of Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Now on to the Trail Effect with Cody Wilkins of Census Rad Trails. So are you full-time based in Wyoming? Are you Because st- uh, from what I gather, you're technically in the Bellingham area or not anymore? Yeah, so I, I live in... I'm- based out of Bellingham um, and then our company operates out of Reno mm-hmm. but you know when we started getting work I the work was all over the place I mean it was everywhere from Mexico to Minnesota to Idaho and Oregon and, and Wyoming so I you know I kind of was like well I feel most comfortable in Bellingham at the time you know this is five years ago it was the most affordable place to move to as, as far as all the communities we were working in and there's three international airports and highways that you know come right from there when i'm home it's nice because i'm kind of like removed from the building scene i actually don't do any work in washington which is really funny we've done one job there but for the most part it's just like a good place to live and ride so which is great but we work a lot in wyoming i've spent like three months this year in wyoming for the resort and i used to live here i lived here for like four years and my girlfriend grew up here so we spend quite a bit of time here so so when you say there is art you talking about jackson hole or yeah, yeah. So we're we're working for Jacksonville Mountain Resort. It's awesome. I, you know, it's funny. I lived here. I moved here for as a skier and uh, was still a mountain biker at the time, obviously. But you know, I I just felt like it's a really great area and there's really good biking, but not necessarily if you're if you live here and you're a core mountain biker because the season's short, land super valuable, and they've kind of taken a while to get trails going. Like Teton Pass is incredible, and they're downhill specific trails. They did a great job with them. But they haven't really given them the room to like build, you know, more than the three that already exist up there. And then the resort um, is still privately owned. And so they were a little bit slow to like get things going. And luckily, I knew some of the builders up there and they're incredible builders because it's really hard to build here. Super rocky, super steep. 
And they finally got to this point where they're like, like three seasons ago, they're like, let's start bringing in contractors so we can like, you know, light a fire under a corporate's ass and kind of get things going. And they moved up. Now there's like 1300 feet of the 4,000 feet and the 10 year plan looks good. There could be a trail off the tram, hopefully in the next like five to 10 years. So it'll be a heck of a project, but it's, it's on the, it's on the docket at some point. That would be incredible to be able to go off the tram. I mean, if they had had that like 10 years ago, it's like, it would be a destination piece, right? Because like you could have these riders come in. They kind of did a, a test a few years ago. They did uh, one of the Montana Enduro series. They had like a guest event here and they used some forest service trails and it snowed like 20 inches, which sucked. They still held the race, but um, they allowed bikes up the tram and, and some access off the tram. But like if like you could have these families come and spend all day getting down it and it'd be this incredible experience or like, you could have, you know, an avid mountain biker come and and absolutely destroy their hands doing, you know, 14, 15,000, you know, feet of vert in a day, you know, which would be really incredible. So they're working towards it. You know, they got a lot of other stuff going on and building here is just slow. Uh, that's what I've learned working here. It's, it's really good dirt, but it is freaking steep. And so every trail that you think you can do in six months is usually, you know, a 10 to two year, 10 month to two year project, like all the time. So. But they've done a great job. Their machine operators are incredible. It's really, we work with them, which is really, really unique. And I think that's one thing that we've been pretty fired up on is like, if the crew's right and we get along with them, like I have no problem working side by side with like these bike park crews. We try not to be independent as contractors because it kind of limits us, you know, on, on some of these fun projects. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And as, as you probably heard, I did have Joe Stone on who lives in your area. And that was, mm-hmm. a, that was an awesome Awesome interview and good to catch up with him. And I see he's now the executive director of T-Town Valley Adapt or T-Town Adaptive. Yeah. And they've done really cool things like their new adaptive trail, um, Deepest Darkest, it's called. It's essentially a line, but it's wide rollers, no jumps. It's the most fun jump trail I've ridden with no jumps on it. And the adaptive program here is like really push the limits. I mean, like uh, our buddy Ben Dan, who does a lot of filming around here, filmed. I don't, you probably saw the piece that they did on it. They did like an adaptive um, edit on it. It's incredible. And like those new bow bikes that those guys are using, I've yet to get on one, but you know, we operate out of Reno where High Fives is out of. And um, Roy Tuscany at High Fives is like, next time you're in Reno, we're going to get you on all the adaptive bikes. Because I think that's a big part of it is like these days, it's like not every trail can be adaptive. But if people are, you know, if they ask us to build an adaptive trail, I need to know how those things turn and, and jump and, and ride. Like I've heard they're really hard actually. <laughs> So when you watch the guys ripping on it, guys and girls ripping on it, you're like, whoa, that's impressive. Let's do a quick intro. How's that sound? Okay. So here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Cody Wilkins. Cody is with Census Rad Trails based out of Reno, Nevada. But Cody, as you will learn, is based out of places outside of Reno. How's it going today, Cody? Oh, it's going great. Yeah, a little bit of snow on the ground. So we're a little bit stressed as far as finishing up this project. But besides that, we're um, entering into the off season here. Let's talk about where you're at now, because it's not Reno and it's not Washington. No, we're in um, we're in Jacksonville, Wyoming, which is great. Uh, this is our third season building here, and um, we started uh, in 2020 actually building a hand-built downhill trail for the resort, um, which is really cool. And then we did a pump track last year, and um, we're in the middle of like a. It'll probably end up being a two-season project of a you know black double black pro-level jump line designed by Cam Zinc, which is really cool for this resort to finally get like a proper, proper jump line. Wow. What's the, uh, what's the elevation on that jump line then? Like how much bird are you dropping? So when it's all said and done, it'll be uh, about 13 or 1400 feet. 
but I think as we were talking about earlier, the, the digging here is super gnarly. It's really rocky and really steep. There's, there is good dirt in there, but it just takes a really long time to build. So we're actually building the bottom section of it um, that connects off an existing trail. And we'll hopefully have, you know, the first, like, say, 400 feet of it, 400 feet of vert open by next June. And then the upper part of it, we'll kind of revisit and it'll end up being like a two-year project, I think. So we're doing it in three phases, essentially. Wow. That sounds, that sounds pretty awesome for that region. Let's get into your backstory a little bit and figure out, you know, kind of lay the foundation for how you got into what you're doing now with Census Ride Trails, being that you grew up on the East Coast and now you're basically in the Mountain West. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I actually grew up in upstate New York, right next to the legendary Platte Hill Bike Park um, and Ski Resort which any old downhillers out there will know that it's one of the gnarliest lift access and oldest lift access bike parks in the country. But yeah, I, I grew up building trail there because they would do like a build exchange. So you could kind of show up. My dad would drop me off when I was like 13, 14 years old. And um, every day you built, you got a ticket and a race entry to use later in the season. And then they'd run the chairlifts from 3 p.m. on, on the day you build. So you'd build from like 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then you get like two hours of lift access riding um, to clear out the trails. So that was kind of where I cut my teeth. And then, yeah, just through racing downhill and ended up at the University of Vermont. Uh, they have a division one downhill team and did a ton of building up there before I eventually fled West about 10 years ago. Well, I didn't know that they had a D1 downhill team. In, yeah, uh, pretty wild. Yeah, is- it's cool. It's like, it's really cool. And it's really fast. I mean, some legendary riders have come out of there, like all the Highland builders and riders, Dave Smutok. You know, this dude Slim, uh, you know, they, you get this in, insane group of riders that came out of there. Kyle Ibit was active on the East Coast back then. Aaron Chase, like it was kind of in the heyday of like East Coast hardcore, you know, like incredible riding all over the place. I mean, the East Coast has like 25 bike parks or something crazy like that in the New England, New York region. So it was kind of natural that it would, you know, put out some crazy bikers and builders. Yeah, that is pretty crazy. Let's go into Census Rad Trails and the kind of the backstory there and how that became a real business. Yeah, so Cam's found Cam Zinc founded Rad Trails. I want to say in 2014 or 2015. I don't know if he saw like a little lull in his career or what, but he decided to start a nonprofit that essentially would kind of like promote modern trail design, especially in the Reno Tahoe area. I think he thought that he would have a little bit more time running it than he did. And his career kind of never really, you know, went down. He's actually kind of been on the up since then. Um, and he's still competing and riding and filming so much. But I really wanted to ride in a fest event, um, you know, the, the big jumps. And I had a lead that he was going to be holding one in 2018. And so in 2017, I moved to the Reno area and I just dug for free on his property just so I could be a part of that event. Every spare minute I had from working in a restaurant, I'd go over there and help build and run machines and water and pack and pack and at the end of it, I was kind of like, I think I'm going to start my own trail company and not knowing that he had red trails running. And him and I had a conversation and he's like, you know, I've been, it's just been sitting idle for like three years. I'd, I'd love for you to step in and, you know, take it over. So that was in 2018 and this is our fourth year of operation. So pretty cool. You know, you mentioned that as a nonprofit. So let's go into that end of this and how that specifically kind of helps give back to the trail community in a different way. Yeah. So the, the nonprofit stuff is, you know, it's, it's pretty tough because I guess like the, the, the biggest thing we see when we're looking at trails, as you know, like the process of getting a trail built can, can kind of be a nightmare sometimes. And I, I shouldn't say nightmare, but it's, 
there's a lot of backend work that goes into it. And what we were kind of seeing is that there was really nobody advocating for like these modern trails at like a city council level at a resort level there, there was, but it wasn't, it was more broad. Like you have like gravity logic working all over the world on these larger scale projects, but there's nobody to like go to say a small rural town in Nevada or California and sit at a city council meeting and talk about like the importance of a pump track, you know? And, and so we kind of, at first we started, we're like, Oh, we'll sell, you know, merchandise, we'll get donations and we'll kind of operate off that and build trails locally. And what we kind of realized is that we were getting so many requests to do these, you know, I say pro for profit, but like we're not profiting off of them in, in that sense, you know, jobs or these private contracting jobs. And we found that that was the best way to fund a lot of these goodwill projects that we wanted to work on. So that was kind of like where we found this like really happy medium. It's something that like mountain bikers of Santa Cruz do, does and a couple other, um, you know, and it's better than like begging for money, you know, in my way, begging doesn't always sound like the right word, but it's just an easier way to like kind of set funds for these goodwill projects. Yeah. And you, it seems like, especially when it comes to city councils and local, more local government agencies, it almost, you almost have to rely on whether or not there's a strong local trail organization to kind of get that ball rolling. Right. And so having your model definitely could aid local organizations. And one of them being Gork, like, you know, you guys have worked in Missouri with uh, Dave Coolio. And so maybe you can go into some of the stuff you've learned from going to city council meetings and some of the stuff you hear to help other organizations like kind of wade through some of the most difficult parts of getting trails built. Yeah, I know totally. And I think a lot of it, it's like sometimes like you're saying, like Gork is a great example. You know, we had Adam from the mountain bike shed in Eureka and Dave um, hit us up and we kind of went there as an advocate just to kind of like a lot of the times, like they know what the bike community is outside of their community. They know how good Benville is. They know how good the Northwest is, Colorado, et cetera. But sometimes they just need that like affirmation of like a, like a company from out of state or from out of the region coming in and telling them that their ideas are good and communicating that to the city council. And so a lot of times we'll kind of act as that liaison of like, just, you know, reaffirming that like, yes, like you guys do need flow trails and yes, like these trails, are beneficial and kids want these and jumps can be safe because if you're hearing it from the local community, like it's kind of hard to connect, like, especially in the Midwest, the Midwest is great. I love the Midwest pride, but you, they don't, they're not looking to these other regions in comparison. They're not comparing themselves to Bellingham because they, you know, they're content with what they have there in their local community. So for us to come in and be like, you know, like you can build this jump really safe. You can, you know, we, there are children who will come and ride this. There are people from out of state that are passing through on the highway to, you know, that'll stop and ride the Eureka bike park. Like they just don't know a lot of the times. The other thing that we've done too, is since we are registered nonprofit, we've worked with groups that want trails or ready to have trails, but have no way to filter grant money through them. And so, you know, we'll just kind of come in and be that, you know, that bridge of the grant money to, even if it's just funding, like the beginnings of a nonprofit before they have their you know, 501c3 setup. And I think like it's starting to turn around. I feel like the first like year or two, we would have a lot of these requests or like, you know, even just like, I'll have, I have a ton of emails that are always like, how do I get this going? How do I use this, turn this empty lot into a pump track? How do we get a bike park going? And I think these days it's pretty accepted, you know, even if you're not a mountain biker, these cities all over the place, you know, like if Eureka, Missouri is onto it, 
all these communities are starting to kind of click and realize the importance of having outdoor recreation in their park. Because trails, I mean, as you know, trails and pump tracks, they utilize spaces that really can't be used for much else. And so I feel like we've almost gone up over that hill, which is great of like needing, you know, these like a nonprofit to come in and filter the money into the trails. Um, Not to say that it's like completely useless for us to still be doing that, but it's definitely kind of cool. Like you're saying, like we're seeing like the, uh, the rotary clubs in these communities and there's a lot of like, you know, after school programs and park foundations that are, have no problem um, investing in bike trails or at least being the holder of a grant uh, as that money comes in and even using their grant writers to, to acquire that money for some of these communities, which is great. Since you guys have been going with uh, census rad trails now for about four years, what are some of the lessons you've learned either on the business end of it that we were just talking about, or even on the building end of it? Like what are some, what are the things you've picked up, you know, through this? You know, one of the biggest things I've learned is that there's a lot of great trail builders out there, but you have to be a great trails salesman <laughs> to get trails built. You know, I think dumbing down my language, like as I was mentioning before, I grew up as a mountain biker. Like I, since as young as I can remember, I've been on a mountain bikes and on trails. And so one thing I've had to change is how do I show up to a random town somewhere in, in the U.S. or Mexico or wherever it might be? And explain mountain biking and explain the benefits of mountain biking to a non-rider, non-builder, even to somebody who might have never set foot in the park that they manage, which is unfortunately, you know, can be a thing. And so that's been the biggest lesson I've learned. You know, I, I've met so many good trail builders through the years, but it really takes showing up and clearly explaining why a 15-foot jump might be safer than a 10-foot jump sometimes. And how much money a mountain bike might cost and how it's actually cheaper than a lot of other things or explaining the difference between a pump track and how it's technically more inclusive than a skate park. Not to say skate parks are bad. I love skate parks, but just kind of explaining the differences because a lot of that stuff kind of gets generalized together. Like a mile of flow trail, a skate park and a playground all get put in the same category because that's where the funding is usually coming from. But it's kind of good to separate that that mile of trail can actually create revenue for a town, you know, if that's what they're worried about. Or if they're worried that they don't have the money for a skate park and a playground, that a bike trail or pump track is actually a really great cost-effective alternative. So learning to, like, rethink the language you speak of. It's not, I'm not talking to mountain bikers most of the time. I'm talking to the corporate head of ski areas, the city councilmen who, and women who've been on the board for a decade, 15 years, who may have never even touched a bike in their adult lifetime. So that's been the biggest learning experience for sure. And then on a separate note is Cam being one of the best riders in the world. You know, he has these visions for trails and it's publicizing that bit, that vision. So he might be like, oh, we got to build this. I want to have this feature. And then a lot of my job is like, how do we create what he's envisioning and introduce it to, you know, an amateur rider, which we've been incredibly successful at, which has been awesome. With that, where are some of the places you've built out? you know, we've talked about Wyoming, but where are some of the other places you've built? Cause I, I, you know, I'm doing some research. You've, you've also built in Florida. You've built up in Minnesota, kind of, kind of in my neck of the woods, but more North central Minnesota. And obviously we've unearthed, unearthed Missouri as well, but where are some of the more, some of the successful places you've built in? So if you're, if you're talking about sheer numbers and success, you know, Florida is actually our most ridden trail in Ocala, um, dead center, Florida. We had a, a friend of ours. Well, now he's a good friend at the time. He just kind of randomly hit us up, this guy, Ronnie Griffer. And he was like, Hey, we want to build a, a jump trail in this, in this quarry. And 
there's a bunch of dirt jumps that existed there, but they didn't really have like something that you could ride like an actual mountain bike on. It was like very dirt jumpy BMX hardtail stuff. And we came in, there's a 10,000 person mountain bike festival down there, which is incredible. And we built like a quarter mile long flow trail, which is really, really cool. And the state put a counter on it. And I think we had like 18,000 laps in the first month of it, which is really wild. I think it's still our most ridden trail. We do a lot of work in Tahoe as well, in the Tahoe region, in the Reno area, just because it's really accessible for us. And we have a really good connection with Tamba, the Tahoe Area Mountain Bike Association. Uh, the ski resorts have kind of caught on and had us super involved as well. And then the biggest little trail stewardship in Reno is where a lot of our goodwill, like actual trail donation goes. A lot of the goodwill stuff we've done throughout the country has kind of been more like advocacy, consulting, you know, donating bikes, stuff like that. But the nice thing about Reno is because all our machines are there and um, all of our employees, you know, our trail builders are living in Reno. For us to go up and host a trail day and donate sections of trails is incredibly easy for us. So, yeah, to date we've done Florida, Reno, um, you know, California, Tahoe, Reno. It's kind of I kind of look at it the same area. We rebuilt the Sun Valley Idaho Pump Track. Uh, we built out the mountain bike camps in uh, Wendell's in Mountain Hood, Oregon. We've worked in Wyoming, Glenwood, Minnesota. Uh, consulted and built in Missouri. Uh, we did a private job in Washington, and um, yeah, we've done some consulting in Mexico and and Colombia as well. So, kind of all over the place. At, at first, we were trying to stay relatively local to the Reno Tahoe area, but given Cam's broad outreach in the mountain bike world, we realized that it's those communities without biking that we want to bring biking to. That it's almost more important than focusing on like an already great destination like Tahoe or um, even Wyoming. Outside of the building and the advocacy, are you guys actually producing plan sets as well? Sometimes. I mean, like, honestly, we'll kind of hire out for that. We've been so freaking busy with like, you know, the, just like speaking and, and, and building ourselves that like, when we take on those larger, we'll we tend to work with like other companies if we need to, if we need to take that on. That was the plan originally was to like, not even be like a set builder for a lot of these jobs or even as a company like you know we kind of wanted to be like working with great builders there's such a need for actual physical trail building labor right now that we've been so slammed on that so this year we've we have three full-time people myself uh, my brother henry wilkins and greg watts special mountain bikers now working for us as well and so we've, I've kind of started to get back into the admin stuff and stepping away from the excavator to start doing more larger, like site plans and city planning as well. But that's kind of new to me. So I'm like trying to learn as I go with that. Yeah. And the reason why I brought that up is I've learned, and I think other people have learned too, that when you actually have a, you know, to, to connect the dots within like a city council meeting or a, or a parks department, like when you have a, a legit plan and I don't, some people, I think get confused when I say legit plan and they they automatically think of master plan, but I think of more of like an actual plan that you'd then take to build with, you know, which obviously for trail building is still pretty loose. But when you have an actual plan, it unlocks money from areas that you never even thought of for donations. A hundred percent. And and then like I think going back to what I was saying, where you're like selling this trail to people who might not understand it, it's a great way to like for them to conceptualize it. The one thing that I felt like um that I was scared to like kind of go full in on these plans was just what you're saying is like you know cities are used to these like heavy engineered plans these like to the to the foot to the inch to the eighth of an inch to the 16th of you know all their engineering and their building 
And, you know, mountain biking is way more subjective than that. You know, it's like, so we've tried to come in, you know, as vague as possible. And you're, it's about building trust with them. So you can kind of come in and do, you know, build a safe trail. Um, and, you know, a lot of those decisions are made, you know, when you're in the excavator and if they're too engineered and too planned, but I'm starting to realize that we, there is a good way to do it. And there is a good way to even just like create a visual, you know, piece to these, to these sales pitches essentially. Yeah. And it, and it is important. I mean, as long as we, you define that there's a corridor, because sometimes you have to deal with the environmental end of things ahead of it, you know, or, and, and cultural resources and that. And so well, you don't want to get pigeonholed down to a certain or nailed down to a certain specific location, you still got to be somewhat specific in terms of like, we're going to potentially be going through here. Totally. And, you know, I think like as a trail building company, what we found is that a lot of that footwork is done um, before we even show up. Um, you know, not to say we're not involved in a lot of that, but like Tamba and Tahoe is a great example, like a lot, like very environmentally sensitive area, you know, especially when you're working within the basin. And so, you know, they come in with their five-year plan and we're kind of the last piece of the puzzle. They're, you know, we might've helped them the last year or two showing where we would build, what we would do. And then they've kind of been really good about that. But, you know, working in Minnesota on that last job, it was really their first bike trails for that community. And we played the role of, everything from pitching it to going through the bid process to it was it was a real learning experience and it was it was like like you're saying it was really good to go through there was some like archaeological areas we had to avoid and it was it was good it was a really good learning experience and it's kind of motivated me to step away from the excavator more and create these plans because i realized that that's what's holding up a lot of these builds um you know especially in areas that don't have a single piece of single track in them yeah i would agree that's a, that's definitely what holds up a lot of bill. I mean, everybody comes to you with, a, with an idea like, Hey, we want to build over here, but it's like, okay, we still got to sell it to whoever the property owner is or, you know, land manager, you know, so to have that down, have something down on paper, you know, and especially with money, you know, we can get stuff funded. It's tough to fund ideas, but it's easy to fund legit plans. Totally. And, and I think especially these days, like we we're saying, like, and especially in the Midwest, the money's there, you know, and for these cities, for them to look at like the investment in, you know, from an outsider perspective, if you look at the cost of a trail, it seems like a lot of money, but in the scheme of construction, um, park development, outdoor recreation, parking lots, all that stuff, it's actually really the cheapest, you know, you know, infrastructure you can build in a, in a park or public land or private land, especially. And it's one thing that you actually see a direct return on. I mean, you go to any of those parking lots in Minnesota on the weekends, is it Cuyuna and Ironton area? I, every time I went there when I, we were building on the weekends, I was like blown. There wasn't even parking spots. And, you know, I think a lot of people are like, you know, that's a direct investment in that community. So that's something I definitely want to get into. I, I need to like dial in my computer skills and I figure hopefully that my excavator skills translate to that pretty easily. <laughs> yeah. You, you just brought up a, a thing that I think of when I think of Cuyuna now, and I'm going to ask this to you as an outsider who came there. I mean, you still have, you have, yeah, I think you're, your mother lives in Minnesota, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So my mom is from Minnesota. Um, when my parents split up, she moved back to Northwest Minnesota. Well, my family has like a third generation beef farm there. So I spent a lot of time there. And when that job was coming to tuition, I, I kind of guided the local volunteers in the right direction and helped them get that trail to bid. And then at the, there's a certain point where they're like, well, are you going to bid on it? And I was like, well, I guess I probably should. And um, we ended up winning the bid. So that's how we ended up there. With that, when you went to Cuyuna though, and you saw the the full parking lots, 
how are the trails? Were they really full? And I'm talking about from a capacity perspective, not from a, like, what was the experience like, but how, like, how busy were they? And I'm going, where I'm going with this is down the directional trail path. Well, no, and I was just going to say, I was, I used Cuyuna and the Minnesota trail mountain bike specific trail planning as, as an example, everywhere I go, especially because we deal a lot with forest service, which hates that they hate directional. They don't hate it. That's a strong word. It's really hard to get a directional mountain bike specific trail in forest service land. And it's really frustrating to me as a rider because it eliminates trail conflicts. But yeah, that's a great point. You show up to Cuyuna and all those directional trails are incredibly built. You might be passing people going different speeds, but there's, you have such minimal interactions on the trail and that's in the best way possible. That's not like people, you're not like, I'm not frustrated with people, but it just flows so perfectly well. There's minimal collisions. There's you beginners can feel comfortable because there's not people coming head on at them all the time. Um, the directional trails are the future, especially, you know, we're looking at like a place like Jackson hole where land is super valuable. We have hikers, horses, dirt bikers, mountain bikers, all using the same areas, which is great. Like I, and I appreciate all those users, but there's a pretty simple solution to eliminating con- trail conflict and having all those user groups hate each other and ultimately working together to get more stuff built. Because if you're building a 20 mile back backcountry trail, that can be multi-directional. You know, you're going to see a lot less users on it. If we're running the shuttle trails on the on Teton Pass, it's a nightmare if they were allowing horses and hikers on the bike trails. And, and for both user groups, that's not to say either one's in the wrong. So. Yeah, for for sure. It's a directional directional trails are something that I've really latched on to pushing more through this through this podcast. And because I think there's, you know, you've you've uncovered the fact that it's safer, it is better for capacity. But then also one of the things I found is like when you go somewhere out of town and you're not familiar with that trail system, if it goes a certain direction, you're not looking at your map or whatever you're using to navigate with at every single intersection. Oh, 100%. And and that's one thing I tried to do too before we start a project anywhere is I bring I obviously bring my bike everywhere we go. Mountain biking needs to be thought of regionally, right? Like it, you know, then that's a tough thing that Skiarias gets stuck in because they're trying to draw all their traffic there in the winter to their hotels, to their restaurants, to the ski area. But what we have to explain to them is like, you know, mountain bikers are coming, they might do a day of riding whether it's at Spirit in Duluth or Jackson Hole Mountain Resort or North Star in Tahoe. They do a day or two of, at North Star. They go ride the local shuttle trails, and then they might do a big pedal day. And so you have to think regionally. And with thinking regionally is thinking mountain bike specific trails. You know, it's just as valuable for a lot of these resorts and stuff to be pushing for these trails in these areas, you know, outside of the resort because it's also bringing people there. But yeah, directional trail is is the way to go. It's the safest way to build. It's really not even that much more expensive. And the trail conflicts, especially on Forest Service land are, you know, we've seen a huge increase in, in riders the last few years and it's, it's very, very noticeable. Yeah. And before we, uh, give the final blow to the directional trail horse, you know, <laughs> I don't want to get, I don't want to get it confused that directional trails are only gravity specific, you know, cause they can be, you know, linear trails that are, that don't gain or lose hardly anything, or they can be climbing trails too. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't need to be like, I, you know, I get hung up on the gravity stuff because a lot of times that's what our focus is on. But even, you know, in this XC trail network that we just built in Minnesota, you know, we really push for those directional trails just from a navigational standpoint. Like you're saying, like you want people to go into a parking lot, park, glance at a map, you know, look at a map for five minutes or so, make their riding plan, 
and only have to check their their phone or their map once they're out in the woods, you know, a couple of times. You don't want every intersection, especially in a park where it's 200 acres and you put six miles of trail there. That's a relatively tight space. It sounds like a lot, but, you know, trails are close to each other and you start to get confused. So just from a navigational standpoint and a safety standpoint, all trails, you know, in my opinion, that have bikes on them, not all, but most trails should be directional, especially on the smaller mileage side of things. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, sometimes you just can't do it. Sometimes you have you have one corridor that you can only fit one trail in. And maybe that's that link from one cluster of trails to another cluster of trails. That's But that's, you know, those are situations where you take it case by case, right? Yeah. And, and that's okay. You know, like, and, and you build the trail accordingly. And then that's the big thing that like that we come in as builders. And, and I think all builders can say this is we can build a really safe, you know, trail that goes both ways, but it's, if we know a trail is going to be directional from the start and it's not going to be like, Oh, we'll see, maybe this will turn into that. We can build a better trail because you're not thinking of blind spots. You're not thinking of grade reversals. You can maybe, you know, make the gradient a little bit steeper in sections on a directional trail, even if it's on a beginner trail, because people don't have to go the other way. So it just, it, it also creates better trails, you know, and, and I think another big thing too, it creates a pretty heavy sense of ownership with it, especially if it's not directional, but maybe mountain bike specific, which is kind of getting into a whole nother realm of things. But that ownership of trail being like, oh, this is built for bikes. Like I care about this rather than going out to your local trails and seeing a ton of foot traffic, a ton of horse traffic, a ton of moto traffic and getting frustrated with the condition of the trail, you know, it might inspire you to be more invested in your trails, you know, because you feel like something's actually being done for your specific user group. Like in Florida, there's a great, you know, they have the mountain bike stuff. They have some, you know, multi-use bike or multi-use hiking and, and walking paths. And then they have horse specific trails. And it's really cool because all those user groups park in the same parking lot. For the most part, they get along really, really well. And all three areas stay really well funded from all the user groups because there's this heavy sense of ownership over that trail. Yeah, that's a good point. That's something that hasn't really been talked about much on this podcast. And I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it's it's tough. You know, it's like I, I everywhere we go, depending on the region, whether it's Idaho, Wyoming, Tahoe, you know, there's a there's a group of people that are most invested in the trails and especially these days, most often it's mountain bikers, I would say. And I, and I, that's not to throw shade at these other users. And, but I consistently see that biggest investment, the biggest turnout on volunteer days, it's, it's usually a mountain bike group. And I think that like, if we can pass that culture on to the hiking and the horse trail, like horse, you know, users as well, ultimately we'll have more trails, we'll have better trails and there'll be less conflict. You know, from the, from day one, that's been the culture of mountain biking. Cause we had to, you know, we, I don't, I, using the word fight is probably bad, but we had to fight for access in the best way we could fight for access is to prove that we can, you know, pull our weight and we belong. Right. And we can help leave the place better than we, than we, what it was when we came there. Totally. And, and we're, we're far more restricted as mountain bikers than a horse or hiker as well. You know, if there's five logs down on a, on a trail, hiker can just hop right over them. Horseback rider can hop right over them. You know, and traditionally, because they have 150 or longer than that, they have, you know, centuries head start on our user group. You know, those trails, a lot of them existed already. The Forest Service was out there building these trails. They're old mining trails, and they didn't need to be adapted for horses and hikers. But now that we have so many users out there, you know, there needs to be kind of a shift in like the mentality of like of trail ownership. And it's tough because you go to a place like the Midwest and these trails are maintained by professional trail crews and, you know, 
the counties and the state are spending millions and millions of dollars to build these incredible mountain bike specific and hiking and multi-use trails. But that money is there. The maintenance is there. And a big thing out West is that, you know, we'll, we'll see 150 miles of single track. You know, I'm looking at a mountain to my left right now, and that might not be touched by a professional trail group ever. So you need to really ramp up these, you know, multi-user groups because a mountain biker to go out there and bring a chainsaw and do all this workout in that area is actually incredibly difficult to go clear 150 miles of trail. Now, if we work with a local dirt biker, he can throw a chainsaw on his on the, his front fender, throw some tools in his backpack and go out there and clear out, you know, every spring. And now you have 150 miles of trail that's usable for everybody. So it's this really tough like conundrum to jump from like the Midwest and see it's it's almost frustrating because the Midwest is so far ahead and the Northeast is so far ahead of all these other trail regions because they've realized they're like, oh, we want to keep these going. We need to hire crews to come in. And the money's there. Nobody's complaining about where the money's coming from. It's great. And then out here, we're struggling to be like, get two miles of trail like that built and maintained. So if it's not on private land. Yeah, for sure. There is. So I read an article when I was doing some research ahead of this that was published on the WTB web website, and it was a Build With Purpose article. And one of the things you hit on in that article is, exp- is that like you expand on modern mountain bike specific trails and how this opens minds. You made that comment in that article, and that kind of stays right on track with what we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, I, I really think that like, I, I don't know if I, I'm just tired of compromise, I guess, with it. Like you're saying with these multi-use stuff, like we have to think like building trails for everyone includes building trails for experts. And this is one thing I've been looked up to Gravity Logic and Tom Pro and, and you know, Rob McSkimming for so long for, because they recognize it's like, right, even now I get these like private jobs that are like, we want to build our first flow trail. And we have this huge five-year plan. Like we're going to start with this green beginner trail and to get everybody here. And then five years down the road, we're going to build a black diamond trail. And I'm like talking to him, I'm like, you know, like, like these days, the level of riding is like skiing, you know, it's like you, you need to have these these places accommodate everybody. There's probably just as many, you know, expert riders out there that would travel to go, probably more, that are going to show up at a trail spot than beginners, you know? And so like rethinking that of like, we can't be stuck in this mindset of introducing people to biking because we're we're past that. You know, bikes have been really good for about 15, 20 years now. And trails are trying to catch up with that right now you know it's like it's okay to build big jumps it's okay to have steeper trails now because there's a whole there's almost two generations of riders that have grown up riding mountain bike specific trails and so when i say that modern trail it's like you know we we just worked at north star and we're like listen we want to build like three massive gap jumps here moto kickers nine foot lips 25 foot gaps and Everybody there is like, nope, those are too big. No one will ride them. They're just going to sit there. The maintenance is going to be a nightmare. And the first day we opened it, it's like one of our most popular trails we've built this year. I get messages and photos and videos every single day of like, everywhere from like 10 year olds to 45 year olds hitting this line. And North Star, you know, reached back out to us and they're like, it's crazy the level of riding. The beginner and intermediate trails barely get ridden in this jump zone that we've rebuilt people are starting to catch on, you know, so it's, it's cool. It's, it's cool to see. With that, I think in that other art, in that same article, I saw the two words, this might trigger some people, but I think we need to talk about it more. The two words trail tax. Yeah. 
I I feel so strongly about it. And that's, you know, I, I'm really fortunate in the fact that I get to travel around and meet with trail organizations that are some of the biggest, you know, well, most well-funded trail organizations and ski resorts in the world to places that have a thousand dollars in their account and they're looking to build their first, you know, section of trail or pump track or buy tools. And we saw, I don't know exactly exact numbers on it, but a massive increase of users, especially with COVID and especially with bikes getting cheaper and better. And if you're willing to go, but we haven't seen that correlate to donations to trail access. And that's really, it's frustrating because you go to these shops and you interact with people and you see people walking out of there with, you know, and everybody's circumstance is different, but you see people walking out there with bikes that at minimum are costing $1,500 all the way up to $15,000. And there's no, there, you know, those companies might be investing in trails on their own, like specialized and stuff like that. But just tacking on a 5% trail tax to a $10,000 bike or a $2,000 bike, and you can even choose which trail organization it goes to, would make a world of difference. Because volunteer days are great. Like, I, I love that. I love people coming out and seeing how hard the trail is. But in, you know, to be brutally honest, a lot of the times that's not the most productive way to build a huge section of trail, you know, and it's not fast, but it, it it creates ownership, but it's not the best way to go about and build that stuff. And so if we can advocate for more money coming into these nonprofits so they can get professional builders in there, we're going to see more trails very, very quickly. And if that means you having to choose between an $8,000 bike and a $7,000 bike, because there's a trail tax, like I don't have much sympathy for you at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think when I saw when I saw the press release on when Kuat came out with the Kashima coated rack for their car for a car, at that moment I was yeah. like, okay, if we're going down this road, we definitely need to advocate for funding of trails more because it was just said to me the other day, and I've thought this forever, but trails do equal sales. You know, I'm gonna flip this coin on the other side too in a minute. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'd love to hear the other side of it because. You know, I, I, and I'm just because I'm in Jackson, I'll use it as an example. Like we have this incredibly athletic, it's one of the wealthiest zip codes in the country, really, when you're looking at the cars driving around in the real estate. And Teton Pass is, there'll be a full parking lot there of running shuttles. And every year, the Teton Freedom Riders who maintain those trails will hit me up and be like, hey, can you help promote it? Like, we need to get some more funding. And I work with those guys. And, and you know, they, they do have full-time builders. But, you know, I've even told them, that, like, I want to come in and help you guys and donate time. I shouldn't have to donate time to a trail organization that's seeing, you know, a full parking lot five to six days a week, you know, like, especially in a community like this, where everybody's got a four or $5,000 bike. And that's not for me being selfish. I'd love to dig. I'll go up there and dig for free. I used to dig for free for them, you know, on their trail days and helping them out. But it reaches a point where it's like, you can't sit there and complain on your $4,000 bike, but there's not more trails. If you've, if you've never donated even 30 bucks a year to your trail organization, you know, but you're going to spend $3,000 or $2,500, whatever it is on your season pass to ski all year to a private corporation. So it's like, I don't know. It's a, it's a really tough conundrum, but yeah, I'd love, I'd love to hear the other side of it as well. Yeah. We'll get there in a second, but we're going to stay on Jackson for a minute. So I've been to Jackson <laughs> a couple of times. I was there, it was for a college trip back in, it was the late nineties. I think it would have been winter of 97, 98. I was there. And then. A really good friend of mine from high school that I actually grew up mountain biking with. He moved out to Jackson for a handful of years after college to be a ski bum. And, you know, he made the comment to me, and it was actually at a time when I was when I was going, I took a trip one time to visit him and then went down to Aspen afterwards because I had a gig for a week helping out with X Games 
in the event production side of things back in like this would have been in 2004 so quite a while ago oh that's that's awesome though that's like legendary <laughs> the height of x games yeah it was it, it was awesome but he made the comment to me that he goes you know people go to aspen to be seen and people go to jackson to disappear and it's like and the point with that was is the level of income that comes into Jack. Like everybody looks thinks of of Aspen as being the really Gucci resort, right? Yeah. And it's like it's next level when you go to to Jackson. I mean, what's the airport like there? Um, it's pretty wild. I mean, in the on season, summer and winter, there's nonstop flights to every major financial city in the country. You know. Well, and how many of those planes are private? Um, a lot, you know, and you know, it's also has changed too. It, it's definitely, you know, not to sound jaded in my young age of my young age of 30. And I'm sure my girlfriend and my girlfriend's dad would, would laugh at me for sounding like this, but you know, this place has really changed, you know, especially in the last like 20 years where it has turned into more of like a look at me mindset. And you can tell by the cars and the houses being built more front and center. Cause even when I moved here after college and I spent a lot of time here growing up, uh, there was it was a lot more quiet. It was a little bit more modest, not to say the money wasn't there, but it's definitely more in your face now. It's definitely turned into uh, what I would pin as a sprinter van community. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Speaking of houses there, I remember we were at, we were at a house that he was, he was actually kind of house sitting for a friend of his dad's that was, it was his second home. And every window on one side of the house was built to frame a scene of the mountains. Yeah. It's, it's, unbelievable i used to do i used to build houses here and um my girlfriend's dad duncan is also a builder here and i mean what people are building here is unbelievable and and that's just like i think that's what and that's fine you know like i said everybody's circumstance is different but when you see you know going back to the trail talk just like you don't see that investment you see people investing in outdoor recreation and the lifestyle of it but not the money's not trickling down to where it should and not to say these places are are aren't funded and these organizations aren't funded for more trails but given the level of wealth and people and the amount of people per capita recreating on these trails it'd be really cool to see you know these organizations thriving calling private contractors left and right to be building and rebuilding and building bike parks and pump tracks and revamping and it shouldn't you know rely on a volunteer basis if you're pulling your ten thousand dollar bike out of your hundred fifty thousand dollar (laughs) g-wagon exactly Exactly. My, my humble opinion. <laughs> I, I agree 100%. And, you know, the volunteer model, like you said, is, is broke. I think it's broke. At least it's, you know, where all the most people that volunteer have a, you know, they have day jobs, they have probably have families and we all got into this because we like to ride, you know? And so to get even something as simple as regular trail maintenance going with like a trail maintenance crew, you could have a trail maintenance crew working just like you, just like you're going to work and then still have those volunteer days to get that ownership. But there's no reason why trail work should only happen one night a week Yeah, in the summer months or one, a couple weekends a month or a couple weekends a year, year round. Right. Yeah. And, and I, and like you said, I, I think volunteership, you know, there's obviously places where they rely hundred percent on volunteers and Bellingham's actually a great example of that, but you know, it's, it's about ownership, not productivity. And it's, it's, and that's, and that's fine. Like, I think it's just as important. Like, I think pro builders, were at, you know, they should be going in there. They know they can build efficiently, quick, sustainable trail, do it really well, do it safely, you know, and volunteer days are, are there. It's to introduce people to the art of it. And I, hopefully people get hooked and want to make a career out of it, especially kids these days, because you can make a really you can make a, you know, a nice career out of it. And 
get to travel and do really cool work. But when you have 30 people show up and you're, especially as a professional builder that hosts trail days, you're managing, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'd say those are the days we build the least amount of linear footage and that's fine. But, you know, we do need those days where it's just us and the crew, you know, our crew out in the woods, just in the machines going ham and, and getting the, the, the trails built. Yeah. I want to go back to bike parks. Are you familiar with, I should have asked you this before we started recording, but are you familiar with Teton Gravity Research's movies? And they just came out with another one uh, this week, but the Pursuit of Soul and the Pursuit of Soul 2. Um, I saw the, I know some of the guys that worked on that, but I haven't seen it yet. That's the, it's about the Midwest ski resort, right? Yeah. Pursuit of Soul 2 is about the Midwest ski resorts. The original Pursuit of Soul came out a year ago and that was more, that was more of a nationwide film based on independent ski areas. Yeah. And I look at that, like I look at those films and you'll be, this will probably ring true to you pretty loud because of where you grew up. But I look at those films and I think of, you know, a lot of those ski resorts were really in their heyday back in the 60s and 70s and maybe even early 80s, but a lot of, a lot of them were in the 60s and 70s. And I think like, this is where mountain biking could be in 20, 30 years, right? Like where you have these local independent ski resorts that are now local independent, we'll call them mountain bike areas or ski areas, because they're not really, these really aren't really resorts. They're more of an, an area. And I just, I think you could replace the, the, the term ski or snowboard with mountain bike. And like, that's where you're, I mean, cause that's, I mean, you're a skier too. Like that's, you grew up skiing on the East coast and how did that impact how you skied everywhere else? And the fact that you just were able to learn how to ski. Yeah, no, I, I you know, I, I'm also a professional rider and work heavily with brands. And a lot of the discussion we have is, you know, like, where's the industry going? And, you know, I also competed in big mountain skiing as a professional for years as well. So I always joke, like half joke about it, be like biking as an industry, as like for sales and development is 10 years behind skiing, 15 years behind skiing. But I hope that it veers and takes an exit before it gets to where skiing's at, because unfortunately skiing is turning into this real estate. It's not Vail's not a ski company. It's a real estate company. Jackson Hole, you know, is a ski brand. It's privately owned. It's still run like a big corporation. And I think the Midwest and the the Northeast have this huge advantage over the West Coast as far as mountain bike developing goes, because they're all these private mom and pop community driven skills. I mean, you look at, I was coaching at Island a few years ago and my buddy Dylan and I were we grew up racing downhill together and we we're like, I wonder how many bike parks are within a seven hour radius of where we're at in New Hampshire right now. And we counted, I think 24, you know, lift access bike parks in this, in this radius. And then I go to Washington and, you know, we have silver and they just opened Suquamish and Whistler, the closest, which is almost three hours away, but there's five or six ski resorts in that. So you're looking at, it and you're like, so what's missing here? Because back East, you know, on private land, private, you know, all they have to do is be like, we need summer money revenue coming in. They just built trails, you know? And so, and the Midwest is the same way. Like I, I rode spirit in Duluth last fall. One of my favorite bike parks that I've ever ridden because you're in this place. It, you don't need 3000 feet of vert to have a good bike park. You know, like you can do a lot with 500 feet. And so I'm hoping that like, we don't see this like big boom and bust like skiing where all these small resorts will be out. I'm hoping that on the flip side with biking, they're actually going to have a, a, a huge advantage over the industry rather than these big resorts. I think like the corporate 
having to deal with Forest Service lease side of like these big ski areas out west, and and not even just out west. There's a lot of big ski resorts, you know, back east and in the Midwest as well. Their lag time and like their process for getting development done on the mountain, whether it's a trail or a zip line or whatever it might be, a hotel, new chairlift, takes so long that these small resorts like Spirit and Platykill and you know all these small resorts in Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, you know, all the way down through the southeast have a huge advantage because they can see the opportunity and jump on that opportunity. And, you know, a lot of people in California and Colorado and, you know, Oregon aren't going to want to hear this, but a lot of the riding in the Midwest and the Northeast is 10 times better than the riding that there is out West. And, you know, it's, that's just something that I've noticed where I think, I think we're going to see a big advantage with these places. And I already, I have some projects I can't quite talk about in my inbox coming from the Midwest and the Northeast that, I think are going to push those resorts even further in the direction of being, you know, true destinations. Yeah. And that's, and that's kind of where I was going with that is, you know, like these, you don't, you don't have to be a huge resort. You don't, you know, you can, you can do it at, you know, 400 foot of vert or 300 foot of vert, you know, Midwest or, you know, like Highland is, I mean, Highland only has like five or 600 feet of vert legitimately. Yeah. I think it's uh, right around five and it's probably the best bike park in the country. Yeah. You know, and, and so, and I was, and they're only a bike park too. They don't even run their chairlifts for skiing in the winter. Yeah. That's actually, you know, I was, I've, I've been a skier my whole life as well. And, but when I hear Highland say we're, when I hear, actually, when I hear Mark Hayes say, and we're 100% bike, that's cause that's usually his last statement when he openly talks about what Highland is and the introduction. I just, I love that statement, you know, because it means they can singularly focus on, I don't even know if that's a word. They can focus on just bikes and they do run the lifts in the winter. If I remember right for fat biking and some, you know, lifts serve, you know, winter experience on a bike, but they don't have to worry about changing operations over. They're just focused on one thing. Yeah. And there's a huge advantage with that as well. Cause they're not like you're saying, like they don't like Jackson has a ton of really cool trails that are out in the open towards the bottom of the mountain. They have to plow them every year to blow snow. And a place like Highland, like, especially in the Northeast, like, you know, it, we have terrible winters back there, but also you can have it be 60 degrees in November. I've ridden Highland and Platykill and Sugarbush in mid-November, you know, and that's something like out West, you get these hard start and stop dates that limit your season to these three month seasons, you know, cause they have to like do all these projections. They have to gamble with the weather. Like right now they're planning opening for the Jackson Hole bike park in June that's not counting that maybe it's going to be a really warm spring and things will be melted out by mid-May, you know? And that's a huge advantage when you're talking about these little resorts, they can flip on a dime to be like, okay, let's do, um, let's do biking, let's do skiing. And, you know, I think hundred percent bike is cool because, you know, Highland I've rode there when they first opened all the way up until, you know, it's like, it's been a few years now, but it allows them to experiment with building. Because a lot of the stuff they built right away was super dangerous and gnarly. And they've progressed into this being the forefront of like, yeah, you can build 40 foot gaps at a public bike park and not have to close them off to the to the general public. And that's really, really cool. And it's more aggressive. It's different than Whistler. But, you know, even the West Coast guys, you know, that I know, they all go out there and they come back they're like, holy crap, that's that's next level. You know, so I think these small resorts, especially privately owned resorts have a huge advantage. My dream, my retirement dream is to own a small ski resort and run free skiing for the community in the winter and a bike park in the summer. That's like my ultimate dream. So maybe one day I'll, I'll be able to pull that off. That's been becoming more of a dream of mine too, more on the, more on the bike side of things. But I mean, I, right now I'm sitting three miles from my local ski hill and it's, it definitely has played a role in my life and 
and now it's playing a role in my daughter's lives, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, skiing and biking are, are run parallel in the fact that like, especially in the Midwest and Northeast where skiing's not a stat, uh, like a status symbol or status symbol. It's like, that's what you do on the weekends. It's what you do in your free time when it's cold. It's the night skiing after school. And, you know, I never mesh well with team sports and it's kind of like skiing and biking can be the most competitive sports in the world. You can race it at the highest level. You can go to the Olympics and do all this stuff with biking and skiing. But on the flip side, if you don't want to be competitive, you can just be a biker from five to 95. You know, my 98 year old aunt, you know, rides her bike by her lake house up in Northern Minnesota. And, you know, it's like, that's cool. You can't do that with soccer or basketball or football or, or skating or, or any of that. And it's really, it's cool to see. And so I think, I, I think the community aspect of it, you know, it, it probably gets preached on here all the time, but that's the real importance of mountain biking is providing an athletic outlet and an outdoor recreation outlet for people that don't want to be competitive. Yeah. I mean, it's, and Nike goes that route too. I'm obviously Nike is competitive, but I know just here locally, like I would say maybe a third of our local Nike team, which is over a hundred kids deep actually goes to races and the other two thirds, they just participate in weekly, the weekly, I guess, practices you could call them. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I try to, I'm trying to maintain or, or increase my involvement with NICA because I, I really, really like it. The one thing I do have an issue with is like, I know a lot of the NICA programs are super strict about like tires leaving the ground and stuff like that. And like letting the kids ride aggressively and hit jumps, which is really confusing to me because those same kids could go sign up for the football program and ram their heads into each other on purpose. And I think that one thing that, you know, with NICA too, that I hope that they realize is that like you can race downhill division one and slalom division one in college especially in the southeast you can get a full scholarship but there's no real like high school outlet for that you have to do these independent race series and so even some of these nike nike programs i've seen is like you know not to bash nike i think it's like the most amazing thing i just wanted to like be you know keeping up with modern riding you know these kids are stepping away from those programs and racing in the local race programs instead of nike because they allow for like a more aggressive competitive experience so there's room for both, but I just like, you know, it's like I said, it's like building trail and creating biking for everybody includes accommodating, you know, that really high level 15 to 18 year old rider. Yeah. I think eventually that if they want to continue to stay on the path they're on with growth, they're going to have to, they're going to have to go down that road. It's funny you say that because it was just in Wisconsin, they just had their state championships last weekend at the truck farm down in, in Southeast Wisconsin at Trek's personal or private trail system. And there's a kid here locally that he races, I don't know what, what division he races. It doesn't even matter. He races on a Trek Remedy and the kid literally is popping off every little, every little rise that he can on the trail. He doesn't care how he finishes. It doesn't matter if he goes, finishes last, <laughs> as long as he's jumping everything that he can possibly jump, which is our very little things and capturing it. And like, like I just saw on his Instagram feed this week, like he's like, just doing everything he can to capture every little bit of air he can on a Nike course in the middle of a cross country race on a 27.5 Trek Remedy. So, hey, my man. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. The kid, he's a really good rider, too. Yeah. And I think that's the tough thing, right? It's like you can, the trouble is, is that in most areas, especially now with these growing race series, is the kids don't have to rely on Nike. Like, you know, they can go step and do their local enduro and downhill series. It'd just be cool to see the schools accommodate that because there is such an outlet for it. You know, like if you want it, there's a U21 or U, there's a U18 Enduro EWS class, you know, and all the juniors racing the World Cup downhill are all high school age. And even the World Cup cross country level tracks are something Nike would never allow kids to race on. 
But on the flip side, there's kids that age racing on them. So there's like this really weird like gap. They're like scared, you know, but at the same time, like I said, it's like you got football and lacrosse and all these contact sports, which like I said, I fully support all of those, but it's like, you know, it's, it's just, it's just weird. It's, but I think you're right. I think it'll, it'll progress really quick because ultimately kids want to hit jumps, you know, and like that's the, that, nothing's ever going to change that. <laughs> well, and then when you have communities like Bentonville that are putting jumps everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. And even the Bellingham community, we don't actually don't have a NICA program in Bellingham, but you go up there and there's like nine-year-olds hitting 30 foot jumps. It's like, it's like, okay, like we got to catch up. Like these kids are going to be adults before you know it. And they're going to, you know, and, and going into a whole nother tangent, but like it, it, we have all these communities, these kids keep building illegal trails and then you go ride their trails. And I come back to them. I'm like, yeah, I would build illegal trails too. If I was 17 years old, you know, it's like, there's <laughs> so you guys aren't providing anything that these kids would find fun. You know, it's like, I think that that's a big thing. Like Imba has done so many great things for the sport, you know, just standardizing trails building. And, and, but some of these communities are still so set in those rules. And it feels like it's okay to break those rules, especially in this day and age with bikes and, and trail crews and stuff like that. So we can like get kids riding more aggressive stuff because, you know, it's in Minnesota, we had this, you know, the, this discussion where they wanted to label these trails green blue and black and i was like telling them i'm like these kids aren't just gonna ride bikes here if we label this a black trail this kid's gonna can go two hours to cayuna and ride a black trail and he's gonna hurt himself because he doesn't know the difference if he just drops in full speed i was like just because you have a small community trail system doesn't mean we can't rate those trails on a high level and provide aspects of those trails that could be present even if you go to the whistler bark park you know as opposed to like this 200 acre town park in a town of 2000 in Minnesota. It's just weird. I think like there's some catching up, but what we're also seeing, which is really cool is like people like you and I are stepping into those roles of, you know, land managers and sitting on city councils and, you know, and working for these ski resorts and, and, you know, making those decisions that were, you know, made by people 30 years our senior, not too long ago. And so it's cool to show up to like, like the for, new forest service manager in, in Truckee in California is super bike motivated first day in office he emails all the trail crews and tamba and wants to go over all these plans he has and stuff like that and that's something that we've never seen before you know in in our lifetime as far as like trail building it, now it flipped the script of like we don't even have to pitch trails anymore because mountain bikers are in the roles of forest service managers and and town mayors and city councilmen and it's it's really cool to see and i think i think it's happening it's just you see a little bit of lag time on the uh, development front as far as like trail and uh, events and stuff like that. Yeah, that is a, that is a real thing that's happening that we are getting, you know, people our age into these leadership positions now, which is awesome to see because it's just, it's just a new generation. Like going back to the ski area thing, I, you know, I look at like what was going on, you know, to get these old, older, you know, resorts or I, I keep saying resort. I got to not say resort older ski areas built like in the fifties and sixties and seventies. And, you know, there's a lot of foresight in like, Hey, like, and I'm not saying this, uh, what I'm about to say, I'm not going to say is a good thing, but like they were clear cutting really steep slopes to put in ski runs and nobody thought anything about it. But then when we talk about trying to put a trail in, that's actually not taking any trees at all, or maybe, you know, at the worst, a few trees that probably should be taken anyways. It's, it turns into this whole bigger like discussion of whether or not we should be doing this. At a, like a city council level, not at our level, but you know, when we're trying to convince, you know, communities or people that this is a good thing. 
Yeah. And that's, and that can be frustrating, you know, like with all resorts, it's like, I, you know, we'll do environmental assessments or we'll come through and want to take trees out and get a ton of backlash or make a trail that's a little bit steeper than it should be for a section. And sometimes I'm like, what are you guys talking about? Like literally a hundred yards to the left, you clear cut, dug a trench up, put pipes in and blow fake snow and add water and moisture to this slope. And then you're like looking at this like 15 foot piece of single track that like, yes, it should be environmentally sound and have good drainage and be safe. But like, if we're going to dwell on this, you know, like, do we want to like open up this whole other can of worms of like being environmentally friendly at these highly impacted ski resorts? And that's, you know, that's definitely, it's frustrating because you, you see it and trails like have, you know, the Northwest, you know, there's a ton of illegal trail building and, and riding and it's, it's, you know, people turn a blind eye to it because it's all on logging land. So it's the liability is covered and stuff like that. And the logging companies don't care because they're looking at that hillside and be like, well, we're going to clear cut the crap out of that whole thing in like five years. So if there's some trails that go straight down that, that have bad drainage, like hopefully it'll be 10 less people that complain when we are like, have all the sediment running into these salmon, you know, <laughs> these salmon rivers. So it's like, you know, it's like, I'm all about being environmentally friendly and doing the best we can to like have environmentally sound trails. But some of the arguments to get brought up against trail building, it's like, my argument is always like, listen, yes, we're running a diesel machine out here in the woods. I burn 10 gallons of diesel over a nine hour day. That's less than your truck driving up and down a pass. You know, that's pretty damn good, like gas mileage if you were to compare. And then on the flip side in Tahoe, we were getting crap. They logged an area and I was getting people photos and videos almost every other day coming up being, I live in town. Everything you do up here goes into the lake. Meanwhile, what I was doing was decommissioning two and a half miles of logging roads that were left by a logging company five years prior that they argued in their contract they didn't have to decommission. So these impacted roads sat in a logged area for in a sensitive environmentally, you know, like protective area in the Tahoe Basin. And then we came in and cleared out the roads with, you know, and we're the ones that were under the microscope for it. And I was like, were you guys up here protesting when they were logging this area? You know, so it's, it's really weird. My argument to that is like, listen, you know, we're creating environmentalists. If we can get more people in the woods when these bigger issues come up, like drilling and logging and road development and, you know, real estate development, you know, I'm hoping that we get enough people on these trails that they'll stand up and be like, hey, we actually use and enjoy those areas. That's where I walk my dog every morning. That's where my daughter learned how to bike. You know, I'm hoping that that translates better you know, like in the long term than like seeing me in a diesel machine out in a, in a, on a hillside cutting like a five foot wide track. Cause it doesn't always look good. You know, like you sent a photo of that to environmentalists say, Hey, we could be under some serious scrutiny. Yeah. <laughs> well, that compared to a log skitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Log skitter and like it's, and what you find buried in the woods, like where the logging zones are, is not always the best too. like piles of beer cans and trash. And it's like, you know, it's, it's tough. And, you know, people need to be passionate about stuff. And I, I usually tell people that I'm like, listen, I'm on your side. Like, I don't want to cut through this like section of meadow where there's this wild orchid that's incredibly rare and beautiful. You know, I don't want, I don't need to build a downhill trail there. Just let me know where it is and let me know how to work around it. But like sometimes with like the gradient and water runoff stuff, it's like, we do our best. We're always doing our best. But like, if you're going to put heavy scrutiny on that, like, it's just good to see that carried like to the people hundred yards away, clear cutting a, a ski run. So, <laughs> well, and the reality is no mountain bikers really want that. We want to mountain bike in beautiful places too. We don't want to mount mountain bike in what might yeah. be resemble like a war zone or something, you know? 
Yeah, I hate the sun. I want to be in the shade the whole time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, before we wrap this thing up, I got a I got a couple of questions that I'm starting to incorporate into into this show more generally. And one of them we're going to say comes from a builder out of the Midwest and he goes by the name, the Mike Rogan experience. I don't know if you know him or not, but he's he's actually currently building in, in Missouri of all places, but he's, you know, he's from, he's from Michigan and he's a good, he's a friend of mine and a good builder and awesome to communicate with. And he brought up to me, he goes, you know, you should start asking people if they go, if, if mountain biking for them, is it, is it more of an excitement experience or is it more of an adventure experience? So what is mountain biking for you? Is it, is it more of an adrenaline excitement thing? Or are you, are you looking to go on an adventure or is it both? And some days you're looking for adventure and some days you're just looking for excitement. Um, currently I'm transitioning to the adventure section of it. Once I turn 30, um, after eight surgeries related to biking, I still go out and do like, uh, I try to, you know, I still have a career quote unquote, uh, as a rider. So I, you know, I go down to Mexico and do like three ride fiesta and I do cams events and I, I love hitting uh, ridiculously sized jumps and, and creating video pieces. So there's a huge, uh, adrenaline aspect of that. I think what this year though, I'm ordering my bikes for next year right now. And I'm about to order a hundred mil cross country bike. And my goal is to do like a 94 mile single track race in the Adirondacks called the over easy next year. So I think that's going to be my transition into being a uh, adventure rider over an adrenaline rider, just because, uh, my joints are hurting and I have to schedule a couple surgeries to get metal out of my body before my deductible resets in January. So <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that's a common trend just with in general, even cross country racers, like the ones that are, you know, used to maybe be like short, you know, more of the XC, like Olympic distance X, XC stuff, they transition into the longer stuff too, as they get older, you know? And so it's more, it becomes more of an adventure. Yeah, I'm all for both, but then it's tough when your boss is Cam Zink and he's, you know, in his late thirties competing in Rampage. So it's like, I'm like, well, I got to keep up in some sense, you know, I can't just like say I'm old when I'm seven years younger than him or six years younger than him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Unseen pressure. <laughs> for sure. A topic I brought up or a question I asked to Drew Rohde from The Lone Wolf was in, this might not really apply to you because you don't, I don't think you own a house anywhere at this point. But we'll call Bellingham your home right now, right? Is that where your mail goes, yep. at least? <laughs> yeah, and we're actually, uh, we're yeah, we're about to, we're we're trying to buy there, so that's it's it, it will be relevant. <laughs> okay, so so here's the question: You cannot be in Bellingham anymore for whatever reason. You you just can't be there. You got banned or it, it, whatever. You just you can't go. But the flip side of that is you can like teleport all your stuff, everything, to any other location in the world or United States, world, whatever. Where would you go to and for a mountain bike community and why? Ooh, that's really tough. I would say I, I'm really lucky because I almost get to do this on a month to month basis with my work. But I will say I'm a sucker for New England and, and the Northeast. And so I would probably end up in Vermont be, just because of the access to riding, the progressive building that's going on, the terrain. Winters are tough, but I think I think I'd up and move back there. Um, you know, that being said, I... I've been really impressed with what's going on in Duluth and Northern Minnesota and, and Northern Michigan. And I think that there's a growing community there. And, uh, if I was thinking long-term as far as like investment and investing in a community, I'd, I'd say in 10 years, that's going to be the place to be as a mountain biker. Yeah. It's, it's pretty awesome to see what, what Minnesota has done. And they've done it pretty quietly too, for the most part, you know, they haven't been front and center, like, like say Bentonville, but then also like you brought up Northern Michigan what Aaron Rodgers has going on with the rock solid up in 
up in his hometown. Like his business isn't a nonprofit, but I almost feel it should be because he's reinvesting so much money into Copper Harbor or that region with his own bike park that I don't think people really realize what, you know, what he really has going on up there. And it's, it's pretty awesome. I, yeah, exactly. It's really, really cool to see all that stuff. You know, we work with Far North Trail Co. from uh, Marquette, Marquette and yep. Nomad. Yeah, and I, I have yet to go explore Marquette. But, you know, I, I think that it's just a good testament of like how, you know, those communities are like, I grew up in a super small town as well. And seeing that like turning of the page of like these industrial towns turning into these like environmental, you know, outdoor recreation sites is really cool. I mean, it goes to show you, like, like I said, Spirit is an incredible, incredible hill to ride at proper rocky gnarly terrain giants ridge has some cool stuff that i know i think pathfinders built some, the best trail up there that new jump trail that they just finished last year and uh it's cool i i think it's cool and i i do love how modest you know the midwesterners are i think that's a big thing that frustrates me as, as part as like the east coast is fast paced and you know head down work hard get all your stuff done the west coast is in your face they they know how good they've got it. And the Midwest is just quietly doing their thing and catching up to both. So it's, it's a cool community. I really like it. And it's, you know, for the time being, it's relatively affordable and it's, it's going to be cool. I think that place is going to be really, really cool in the next decade. Yeah. Yeah. Marquette's. I've, I just said it, I just texted a couple of friends of mine that are really well versed in traveling all over the country, but they live where I live in the cross. And I said, I said, Marquette is the number one mountain bike community in the upper Midwest changed my mind because you just, it's, it's, and it's similar to, to Duluth. It's just, they've had it going on there for quite a few more years than Duluth has. And it's just so awesome. We were just, me and another friend of mine were doing an enduro up there back in mid September, well, mid late September. That was the first week of October. That's right. So it was about a month ago now. And he'd only raced enduro prior to that. He'd raced once in Duluth, but prior to that, all of his racing had been in, in the Bentonville or Arkansas area, I'll say. And he was just blown away with what was going on in Marquette, you know, and it's a great place. Yeah, it's cool. I got to, I got to make it out there. Far North Trail helped us um, in that Glenwood, Minnesota job. And so I got to go make a trip and visit Zach there and, and do some riding with him and get the tour because I, the Midwest is cool. And like I said, like we have incredible riding in the PNW. It's why I live there. But, you know, sometimes you, you don't, you don't feel as like part of the community, you know, you don't feel like everybody's as open to showing trails and, and there that the excitement I think is what's really cool in the Midwest. Cause everybody, no one's going to not tell you about their favorite spot. No one's not going to, they're not going to tell you not to go like, they're not going to like ignore you when you ask which bar or restaurant you should go to or which campground you should stay at or where's the best trail in the state. Like they're not going to withhold that information. And I feel like in the Northwest, it's the opposite. You got to poke and pry and get him a few beers deep before you know where to go ride. <laughs> wow. Well, with that, do you have anything that we haven't talked about or discussed that you want to quick throw out there as far as closing closing comments and any thank yous and stuff that you got to throw out there? Um, yeah, I don't really have any closing comments. I feel like you you covered everything really well as far as like questions and stuff goes. Uh, definitely got to thank Cam Zink. I mean, he's, he's like uh, a lot of people don't realize how much effort he puts into people you know, behind the scenes in the bike world and up and coming riders and builders. And if you work hard, he notices and respects it. And then, um, you know, census and WTB and Banshee bikes and, you know, Oleans and a bunch of really cool companies that are and ride tenant components out of Bellingham. They're, you know, I only ride for companies that support trail building and all of those companies are, are doing just that, which is really, really cool. Ride fast racing and SoCal too. It's, 
it's funny. I always wanted to be a pro mountain biker. And then once I became a pro trail builder, it's like, I finally felt like I got my like chance at a career as a rider, you know, and, and all these companies that, that was, that was a stipulation be like, I'll ride for you and support you. But, uh, you got to invest in trails and, and you got to invest in me. Who's putting their, you know, life and time into building them. Well, Cody, I really appreciate the fact that you reached out to me on this one and that we we're able to record this today. And we got through all the technical difficulties because once we shut the video off, there's been no issues. I know it was just the video, right? I guess we're both just flying on that bad Wi-Fi. But yeah, thank you so much, Josh. I really appreciate it. It was a good conversation. and I love talking about bikes and trails. For sure. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Also, please don't forget to leave a rating and review as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.